slow down and enjoy the process of film photography as a whole. Blah, 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 blah. I have a phone call. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On this week's episode, we're talking to Pete Halverson about his seaside photography. Following that, we'll plumb the depths of underwater photography from the first photo to Jacques Cousteau. We'll also discuss some of our recent film failures and why we don't shoot digital. Sort of. The reasons may not be what you think. But first, Eric. Oh? How the hell are you? (laughs) This all seems very backwards, but I am doing okay. We're recording this way ahead of schedule. (laughs) So not much has changed since the last episode, but I've actually shot a little bit in Seattle a few days ago. I had a roll left over from my July trip and the, uh, the box brownie, and I took two sheets left over from the California coast trip. So this is kind of like the leftovers photo. It's just like, yeah, I gotta get this film done. I gotta get it out of here. So I took some shots. We'll see. I haven't developed them yet. I've been in sort of a developing slump lately. And I think it's probably because of the podcast work. We're cramming. And so we're all fucking hyped up to do this. So (laughs) how about you? What's the what? (laughs) Well, I'm here now. But really, right now, I'm over here. (laughs) Okay, so where are you? I'm in New Mexico. All right, why? Actually, I drove out to Waco, Texas. To mm-hmm. go surfing, because that's what people in California do. They drive to the middle of nowhere to go surfing. It makes sense. You don't have an ocean or anything. No, there, no, so. exactly. I decided to do it in, do three nights, four days. So I had time to get off the highway and shoot some small towns. Oh, cool. I have a couple of highlights, I guess. Yeah, what did you do? Tucson was great. Shot some cactuses, but kind of hard. I don't know. We'll see how those come out. Bowie was interesting. There was this very dirty, uh, scary pit bull that did not want me to walk around in town (laughs) (laughs) and barked at me and like came towards me. So I just like walked to my car very slowly and decided to give him the rest of my sourdough baguette roll I had. He was quite happy about that. It is a very good use of sourdough. Yes. So we're friends now, but I don't think I'm going to be visiting him anytime soon. Oh, I'm sure he's heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, There was a couple cool towns. Basically drove all the way through New Mexico because it's really rough right now. All the state parks are closed. So a lot of my plans uh, were canceled. So I basically drove through. This is the first time I'm staying and I'm staying in dispersed camping, like in the middle of nowhere. We're out here by ourselves. Yeah. Free camping, social distant. Like, there's nobody around for miles, yeah, 20 miles. <laughs> so we're good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Texas was fun. It's a strange time to travel with the elections. Yeah. It was, I had some feels, some weird okay. feelings here and there. Um, I think it's just like kind of an intense time. I photograph with my water housing, obviously, at the surf place. And okay. I think I've got like at least 10, maybe even more, uh, a couple oh, cool. 35. So yeah, I have enough for dev party for a while. <laughs> nice, nice. So what did you shoot? It's like the, the smaller towns. What did you shoot there? I've been focusing on old signage lately for some okay. reason. Yeah, you become a sign girl. 
I have. I think it is mostly because I am a little bit nostalgic and I do like the signs, but also I just go into a place and I'm not sure what to shoot. So I think that's kind of what I get. I'm like attracted to right away is like really old signage, just really like beat up stuff where you could barely tell what it says. It's kind of neat. It's kind of fun. Old buildings with like detail in them. I found this really cool building with, um, these little shells on them that was in texas a lot of people of course parked and stopped and watched what i was doing i stick out it's mostly like ram trucks and jeep liberties it's super strange (laughs) and then i found like an actual place that had it was like a auto like sale place that had ram trucks and jeep liberties oh so that's where they get them they just come from that one place? Yeah, I think so. It's like a his and hers type of place. Oh, look, there's a car driving by. Oh, my God. Oh, I guess that. you're not alone. I guess not. <laughs> so overall, a good photographic experience? I would say overall, a pretty good photographic trip. Definitely. I shot a lot of film. I'm pretty happy with it. And uh, nice. I look forward to seeing the results. Nice. Are you ready to uh, get the hell home and get the hell back to work? Yes and no. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I know that once I'm home, <laughs> I'll obviously miss the road and, and photographing, but I will be happy to be home in my own bed at some point, yeah. maybe even take a shower. Yeah, things are good. All right. I guess we'll send it back to the present, Eric and Vanya. Yeah, I don't... something. I'm sure that was awesome. Thanks, future or possibly present Vanya. I'm never really sure how any of that works. Honestly, time is a construct. Uh, But just to note, this episode is being recorded prior to the American election, but it will drop after the American election. So we're kind of in a weird limbo here. Again, time, it makes no sense at all. Uh, Even future Vanya doesn't know the results yet, probably. We're a little hazy on that as well. So if we sound too happy, this is why. And if we don't sound happy enough, this is also why. (laughs) Regardless of what has happened or is happening with the election and the election results, there's a lot of damage to undo and some wildly fascist cravings to fight against. That won't change with one election. At the start of each episode, we present to you with a trivia question about our main feature. This time around, it's about early underwater photography. Here's what we got for you today. Okay. In 1896, French zoologist Louis Bouton was trying to capture underwater images. After being unimpressed with his waterproof case, like the water housing that he built for his camera, he decided to just submerge his bellows camera, allowing it to fill completely up with water before he took the shot, just dunking the whole thing in water kind of naked. The photos he created were exposed correctly, and even the lens proved to be basically sharp underwater, but the results were still full of waves and blurs. What was the cause of this imperfection? And we'll have the answer for you at the end of the show. So since we're just getting into this, uh, let's check the answering machine. For today's episode, we ask you, the listeners, simply, why not digital? 
This is not the same as asking, why do you shoot film? This is a question for those of us who have, or for the most part, made a decision to kind of leave digital behind. What did digital not provide for you that film did? Now, some of these callers sort of abided by that and sort of didn't, but I think the answers that we got are interesting. We also got, we got more, we got more answers than we've ever gotten before. We're including about half of them for time. Uh, there, there were a lot that we had to leave on the cutting room floor, and we do apologize. All right. Can I push the button? Push it. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey guys, this is Kate Miller Wilson. I have taken hundreds of thousands of digital photos. It's how I learned to shoot. And yet I have not touched a digital camera in quite a long time. Part of it is the tonality. I love the mid-tones that you can get with film that are there if you know what you're doing with editing in digital, but it's still not the same. And I mostly shoot large format and love the movements I can get with that camera, which again, really not possible, maybe with a tilt-shift lens, but still. But ultimately, it's about the soul. Film just has more of me in it. Those shots have more of me in them. And ultimately, putting your own perspective and your own soul into your work, I think that's the point of what we do. Perfect answer from a wonderful photographer. Oh my god, yeah. Uh, we're, we always we always find ourselves kind of talking about Kate. Yes. I mean, there's definitely a lot of photographers out there who we couldn't imagine their, their work being the same on digital. And Kate is absolutely one of those people. I can't imagine that she would be able to do what she does on digital. I agree. Yeah, you've definitely seen Kate's work. So uh, if you haven't, <laughs> go check her out. Kate Miller Wilson. It's amazing. Hello, this is Jamie Maldonado. I like the simplicity of not having to see the result every single time, having to trust the equipment more, and just being in the moment and being present with my subject instead of looking at a screen. That's just part of it, but that's an important part to me. Thanks. That's interesting like having to trust the equipment and the equipment that most of us are choosing to use actually all of us i guess are using just because of necessity is old equipment my newest film camera apart from like the four by five is 30 maybe 40 years old and that's pretty common so trusting one of those old machines to to do its job is well that's a lot of faith yeah it is but in 30 40 years are you going to be able to trust your mirrorless digital camera no, <laughs> probably not. That's true. That's true. Just hold on to the chargers and cords and everything you need to, to charge those batteries, because I'm sure those will be ob obsolete. Oh, and you have to keep a computer, too, that takes those memory cards as well, right? <laughs> Hi, this is Suzanne Lopez. And I would say for me, I feel like shooting digitally makes me not anybody else, but I feel like it makes me a little lazy with my photography. And I'm really trying to get to a point where I'm consciously, when I'm working on things that are a little more important, not just taking random photos, which is also fun, I really want to think about it more. And I think you can think about it with digital. I just tend to not. However, I do own digital and shoot for it with it professionally. So I'm not against it. I just prefer it because it holds me accountable a little bit more. I like that. I want to get to the point where I can look at a scene and just be able to meter in my head yeah. without having to rely on a light meter or anything like that. And for the most part, I do okay. Like in the in the ocean, that's basically what I do. Yeah, you do great there. But yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like, <laughs> I know this is like super silly, but it's kind of like how we memorized everybody's phone number 
when we didn't have cell phones and now i don't know anybody's phone number anymore so would you say like exposure guides are black books now basically (laughs) okay Fair enough. I also think it's great that she shoots digitally professionally. Yeah. And that she still has an opinion on film and actually as a as a higher opinion of film. I think it's it's great. Again, we're not denigrating digital at all. It's not it's of not about not. that. And you know, she made it he made it clear as well. Uh, if you want to shoot it, go for it. Hi photo friends. This is Nick Toro Jr. The reason why I gave up digital is because I got tired of the simplicity and the perfection of a digital image. And by shooting film, I'm embracing the challenge and the difficulty and also the near misses and disappointments to get to what I find to be a a satisfying photograph. We'll be talking about a lot of those disappointments and near misses and how they do build to, to like you said, to, to getting better photos. And I guess, I mean, I guess the same could be said for digital, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely like, there's a sterileness to it when you look at the image. I mean, and of course, when you run it through Photoshop, you can manipulate it any way you want. Yeah. But there, there is something sterile about it. It's, it's almost like when I gave you the Hasselblad to use, you were like kind of pissed that it was a little too, you're like, I'm going to push this film and i'm gonna develop it in Renault because i'm gonna find grain in these photos <laughs> well yeah and i remember shooting that and shooting a lot of the same scenes with uh an imperial savoy 620 essentially plastic lens toy camera and shooting a lot of the same scenes and liking the savoy's photos a lot more and yeah. i think that was because of the character and i mean obviously i was blown away by the optics of of the Hasselblad. There's no way you can't be. But it's not just about that for me. And for most photographers, it's not just about how clear everything is. Yeah. It's about the, what did, what did Kate say? It has soul. So hello, my name is Or and I'm from Israel. And there's a saying by Gary Vinograd, which said, I take photos of things in order to see them being photographed. And I think that digital just doesn't give that vibe. You just see it right away what you have photographed. And that's why I say no to digital and yes to film. So thank you. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I, <laughs> I, do. I always like hearing from him. He's, he's kind of inspirational in a way. I'm not sure why or how. I'm not, you know, he doesn't, I don't know. I don't know why. We talk a little bit in private and, and he's always just very inspirational and, and kind of hopeful, I guess, and <laughs> trying new things. And uh, I don't know, to be young and curious or something. I don't know. I gotta go on though. <laughs> Speaking of young and curious. Hey, Jonas, aka Collimator, here. Been a while. Shooting with analog cameras, it's like creating something, doing pottery and putting it in the kiln or stuff and see what comes out. It's always exciting, but doing digital, it's like, I don't know, like doing dishes, right? You get something done and you see the result right away, but where's the fun in it? Ciao, have a nice day. I owe Collimator in a package. <laughs> you do, yes, you do. <laughs> I think his comparison film is like pottery, because it really is in a lot of ways. You know, you don't see what you get with pottery until you're done with the kiln, and you don't see what you get with, with film until you, you develop it. Mm-hmm. Is great, and that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure that's, that comparison has been made before. But comparing digital to doing dishes, like you have to do them, and you can see the results of your work right away, but it's not fun, though may- maybe you do like doing dishes. I, I don't know. No, no one likes doing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, okay, I take that back. I like doing dishes. I don't like putting dishes away. Okay, fair enough. 
Hey, this is Hans Roseman from Hans Roseman on Instagram. I guess what I don't understand is the reason or why people choose to bifurcate the process, because most people are scanning their images anyway from their film, so half of their process is digital. So I guess, to me, there's really no need to denigrate one process or the other. It's just, well, you know, why not digital? Because, well, you already are. I was waiting for someone to say this, yes, because so that I. is true. Yes. I don't like to manipulate any of my photos. I like to keep them the way they are. And that even sometimes means <laughs> the lint that's all over them, sure. but I will go ahead and erase it. And in my head, obviously, I'm thinking, well, it. I'm already, I'm digitizing the photo when I put it online. Yes. But the whole point of like making a dark room and getting it is like, kind of trying to slow that down a little bit and keep it all analog and like actually printing work and yeah. shooting work that like means a lot to me. That would be unfortunate because I would be sharing less, but I still want to be part of this community. So I'm going to have to like do a little bit of both, obviously. I really tried to make that clear in the question that I asked last week and and the, uh, the post that I made on Instagram. And honestly, n none of the callers that we got, including the ones that we had to leave on the cutting room floor, were incredibly down on digital. There wasn't any of the that weird film versus digital bullshit that that really honestly just irks me. We got none of that. And that's really wonderful. So thank you to everybody who who called in and didn't do that because I was just going to mm -hmm. automatically cut those. And I didn't have to cut any of those because of that. That said, I think I don't fully agree with Hans. I know that we are digitizing our film and that is digital, but we're not capturing the image with a digital sensor. We're capturing the image on film and different emulsions do different things. And as I'll touch on later in my reply to this, that's not fully an excuse to just shoot film. But I think for me, it goes a long way. Maybe I'm not the best person to answer this question because I haven't really given up digital. I've just really recontextualized it. I like to shoot handheld in really, really low light. And I like to shoot in pouring rain. And for things like that, my digital sensor in a sealed body is actually kind of an optimal solution. But I think that in a lot of other cases, I have come to embrace the delayed gratification and the ability to actually understand how different film stocks will respond to different lighting conditions and different types of scenarios in a way that no number of Lightroom presets can really do justice to. And so I guess for me, at the end of the day, my digital sensor is basically a single film stock for me that I absolutely use in certain contexts, but definitely not all of them. I like that. It's like an incorporation of, you know, bringing that in for specific things. And I like that. Yeah, I never really considered digital, like your digital sensor as another emulsion, essentially, you know, that would play that role. I think that's kind of cool. And I think it really is, it's kind of the same thing that Hansa was saying, but it's also a counter to that in a way. I don't know. I really, I really like it. I'm certainly not a purist and I really appreciate what Gravity Train was saying about that. I really appreciate that. I like experimenting with new mediums and digital seems like a really heavy upfront buy-in for a single medium that's optimized for the search of a certain kind of perfect photo. And I really like the community in the analog, but the one thing that really digital doesn't have at the moment is the ability to print out a negative and put it in a condenser and make a darkroom print. True. Yeah, I know there is a way 
to to do that digitally. I'm sure there is. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. You can definitely invert it like yeah. on Photoshop somehow and, and print, print on a transparency um, of some kind. Yeah, on transparency. I did that for um, cyanotypes okay, at that makes one sense. point. So you can do that. Yeah. And and honestly, like when when it comes down to it, like with digital companies are just trying to sell cameras and they're coming out with newer things more and more and more and more. <laughs> and of yeah. course I I do spend money on cameras. Of course, everybody does. We all do it. Shh, just don't tell anybody else. <laughs> but I can't keep up. I have a digital camera. It's a uh, Nikon D610. And it was for like work. It's like old and obsolete basically now. Yeah. Within a blink of an eye, as soon as you purchase a digital camera, there's there's a new one that's already out. It's like the iPhone. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that definitely keeps me in the analog realm of things uh, my cameras never go obsolete because they are just always obsolete <laughs> <laughs> they were just obsolete to begin with hi eric and vanya this is matt at moonraker 32 on instagram i originally started out shooting film i was you know shot film all through my childhood and into college and eventually did gravitate over to digital cameras i had one that i took all through europe and then i even inherited dslr I'd always shot a K1000 Pentax, and I really wanted my digital camera to kind of just function like that camera did. And it just, it was overcomplicated and just didn't do that. And so I just stopped shooting with the digital camera and went back to the Pentax K1000 and uh, rediscovered my love of film photography and been going down that road pretty much ever since. I do think that there is a back and forth. I think a lot of us have the same story when it comes to, you know, shooting film as a kid and then, you know, kind of switching over to digital when that whole thing happened and then realizing like maybe what you really liked about taking pictures and maybe that was lost because of, at least for me personally, I wasn't strict with myself as sure. far as how many pictures I'm going to take. Yeah. I think that film kind of grounds you in that way as far as like, look, you get 36, that's all you get. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the, at the larger formats that you go, like if you go medium, you get less. Yes, you know you've got eight, 12, and less is more, baby. <laughs> it is, and if you do if you do uh, large format, you've got one. You know, if we, or I guess in a film holder, two. You've got two chances with this one holder. Th that limiting, it really changes the way you shoot. It really, really changes it. You could shoot that way digitally if you were disciplined enough, but I think as humans don't You're know if we have that in us. <laughs> yeah, see, that's the word I was looking for, discipline. discipline. I have zero. This reminds me of a question I got from a clerk in a camera store. I think I was buying film and he asked me this and I wasn't really prepared to go into detail. I simply just quickly answered, because I like the click. <laughs> he was surprised and I went on to explain, old cameras all have a unique click and I enjoy that so much. I mean, of course, that's not all why I shoot film, obviously, and why I choose film over digital. But um, that is a part of it. And maybe that's why I was drawn to the Mamiya RB67 in the very, very beginning. <laughs> and that's not exactly a click. That's a fucking experience. <laughs> I love old cameras as much as you do. I love the style, the weight of them, the manual functionality, the font they use on the logos, the smell of old dusty parts, the materials they used. <sighs> I mean, so there. I am out of the closet. I am a huge gear fan. <laughs> oh, you've got... <laughs> and not necessarily about prime lenses or anything like that. Just 
Sure. Just more about something made 60 years ago that still exists and can still produce beautiful pictures. I have a digital camera and I have used it once this year, mostly because I'm not taking pictures for clients anymore. I wanted to take back photography for me, not for money, but for the love of taking images. But separating myself from digital has been wonderful. I enjoy the limitations and the limitless possibilities of film. Everything feels hands-on and that makes all the difference for me. Especially in these times right now, it's like my photography this year has been I've I've had a big year. You've had a really huge year. And I think with our one of our ending episodes of the year and the last episodes that we do of the year, I think we really need to kind of go over that and pick that apart. You've had a really interesting photography yes. year, which is bizarre considering this has been a fucking dumpster fire of a year. <laughs> but I think that's what we need as like we need something. When it when yeah. shit goes bad, like we need to create, we need to do something. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I think so. Yeah, I should. I should do that. I should be. <laughs> we have. We have a podcast. Okay, we've made it we through have a the year, okay, basically. I don't know. Almost. We'll see not, how, how not it goes. Quite there yet. Now, <laughs> maybe future Vanya knows. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, it, everything could be on fire right now. I have no idea. <laughs> so, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Answer. Well, my answer is, is my answer is going to be a little different than most people's, <laughs> which is, I guess, not surprising. I don't know. It's not. It's just weird. So, okay. When I was shooting digital, I was doing everything I could to make my photos look like film. This was before Instagram filters and all of that. So I was doing a lot of stuff in Photoshop and GIMP to make things look like film. And finally, I just said, fuck it. And I started shooting film. So originally, my answer would have been that I don't do digital because I like the look of film better. And it's a fine thing to think, I guess. But I think that's going to change. I think my opinion is going to change and has changed. The advances in the digital arena, they have made it very easy to make digital photos look like film. And I don't just mean like really simple Instagram filters. And soon through like the use of AI, you will literally not be able to tell a difference. Like if you take a digital shot and want it to look like Tri-X developed in D76, AI will be able to make that happen right down to the grain structure. Do you want it to look like Ilford Delta 100 developed for some reason in Rodinol? AI will be able to make that happen. So soon, if not already, shooting film because we like the look of it more than the, like, the look of digital won't be a reasonable argument anymore. And I'm I'm really happy about that. I think that's a, a fun thing that we're going to have to kind of think to ourselves, like, why do we shoot film? So there's even a technical possibility that a digital sensor could be fitted into old cameras, sort of like the, well, exactly, like the new Hasselblad digital bat can be used with the old 500C models from the 1960s. I mean, if you've got $25,000 burning a hole in your pocket. But money aside, that's possible now. We can do that now. You can use old lenses and all of that too. There's a, a thinner and thinner line between the, the look of the two. With that in mind, I gave this a lot more thought and apparently a lot more words. And I think that it goes back to how I feel about vinyl. I've talked about this a couple episodes ago about playing records. Like playing records, they don't sound as good as digital. They just don't. Yet I like them more than I like digital. And I like, you know, I like the ritual and the work that goes into making it happen. I like loading film, even into film holders. I like developing it. I like scanning it. And I'm sure when I get around to it, I like printing in the darkroom. These are things that AI can't replicate apart from some, maybe some crazy VR shit. So this is why I don't shoot digital and why I just have no desire at all to shoot digital. While it can provide the same shooting experience and the same sharing experience and even the same look as film, it can't provide the rituals that I enjoy. I was waiting for you to break, but you didn't break. So I just was like, all right, I'll just let it go. 
Watch out for snakes. It's confession time. In the past few weeks, we both had to watch out for <laughs> some pretty crazy snakes. <laughs> Very crazy snakes. Some film In- failures, honestly. Yeah. So for both of us, they're, I guess, devastating. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, yeah. I think yours were a little devastating to you and mine were a little devastating to me. I mean, yeah. as far as like what's going on in the world, no. no <laughs> but like what's going on not. in the changing bag? Maybe. <laughs> we like taking responsibility for our fuck-ups and share them with you. So maybe you can commiserate. Let's uh, yeah. let's hear what you got. Let's Eric, you go first. <laughs> oh, I'll go first. Uh, since I started shooting 4x5 a few years ago, I've been plagued with light leaks. I've talked about this before. I remember with Cameradactyl, we, we talked about it. Mm-hmm. He had some really good advice for me, which I absolutely did not heed. What was the advice really quick, just in case anybody else wants to? The advice was get new film holders, and that's just not something that I've done, and I probably won't be doing that. So I have an easy solution here, but I'm going to continue. So it's only a small fraction of the photos that are affected, right? But for the longest time, it seemed really almost random. But here's a tip. If you have a light leak while shooting large format, and you didn't obviously fuck up the shot, it's almost always the film holder. And even more specifically, it's almost always the slot where the dark slide lives, that. I've ruined a number of shots this way. It got so bad that I actually started keeping track of which film holder and which side I used for each photo. So, for instance, if I took a shot, along with the location, the film, the aperture setting, and the shutter speed, I'd write the film holder number and the side. After developing it, if I noticed that there was a light leak, I'd find the holder and examine it to make sure. One of the things I plan on doing this winter is testing all of my film holders. I remember saying this uh, last autumn, and... It sort of happened. I planned on doing this before, and to an extent I did. I just didn't realize that the leaks always came from the dark slide. Silly me. I'm sure there's a way to fix this. Yes, buy new holders. (laughs) Okay. It's not what I mean by fixing. But, you know, maybe I could somehow dismantle the film holder. I could redo or rebend the light baffle. I'm not exactly sure how those are made. And then somehow put it all back together. Maybe. But that seems incredibly challenging. That seems like it would take effort. Not always into effort, especially on like the old wooden ones with the metal, with the metal kind of collars around them, like made by Graflex like a billion years ago. I've got a ton of those and almost all of them have this problem. But my latest issue has me completely baffled, if you'll forgive the pun. There was a light leak, but it seemed to begin half an inch from the frame. Like there was a half inch of perfectly exposed photo that then abruptly ended with the light leak that faded into the rest of the well-exposed image. This happened on several sheets. I also noticed some hazing on a couple of 120 rolls. It made no sense. I chalked it up to coincidence and placed it lovingly in the who-fucking-knows pile, which is a rather large growing pile sometimes. (laughs) But the next day, we were Vanya and I were talking, we were loading film, and the next day... Well, I was loading film. Yes. I was loading film, and I said, oh, honey, I know what happened. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, what? 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 What the hell are you talking about? What? And you just kept me hanging there. And this, okay, now this is a really common refrain. She'll often lead with some kind of exclamation about how she's discovered some new thing, has some new idea, and won't tell me what until I just say what a billion times and I, I give up, exasperated, and honestly forgetting whatever the hell she was talking about. But in this case... <laughs> Well, I want to explain myself because it's like, oh, okay. I'm like a deer in headlights because he'll be like, what, what, what? what? And I can't what? like gather my thoughts together oh, <laughs> and I God. just freeze. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you came unfrozen, when you thawed, you were like, 
It's your watch. It's yeah. your watch. <laughs> yeah. So I have a watch. I have a Fitbit. If I you have the know. same. Yeah. I have the yes. same one. <laughs> and so yeah, we're like, wait, we're uh, Fitbit partners, team meow or whatever the hell. Yeah. And so whenever I move my arm in a certain way, the watch would illuminate spraying this destructive blue light all through my dark bag and onto my film. And that's what happened. My hands were in the dark bag. Her hands were about to go in the dark bag. And then she realized, oh my God, my watch. And I never realized that. Yeah, I take I take my watch off. I have to do it when I go into the dark room too, which I haven't yeah. done in a while. Also, dark bags. Can we just call them like something short? Would it be D-bags? <laughs> Would it be D-bags? I think it is. I don't know if that's good. So, Vanya, you also had a film failure. Actually, one to which I was present. One to yeah. which I was present. You also had a film failure, and I was present for this one. Yeah, so you probably could have helped me not make this film failure, but... No, instead, I, in- I assisted in the film failure. <laughs> you did. Yeah. Okay, so I first. mentioned this story a little bit on, I think, on the either the dev party or Patreon bonus episode. I don't know. I can't remember. I'll go, I guess I'll go into a little bit more detail. Sure. So my friend Morgan and I were checking the waves at the surf spot. Um, I haven't surfed up north. The funny thing is when I was in high school, it was our lunch pot stop, rain or shine, because it was close to high school, but far enough away from the campus cup. That was where we went. Yeah, I, I witnessed a lot of your former pot stops. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know that you did much more than that as a kid, but go, go on, please. <laughs> I have always dreamed of like surfing up there. So it was really rad to check it on a super rare sunny day. Uh, we climbed up on to this beautiful hilltop to check the surf. It was like a bunch of sand dunes, like very prairie-esque scene. And once we got to the top, we could just see like these tiny little peeling waves breaking. I mean, not very big, but God, it was just the scene itself yeah. was amazing. It was striking. Yes. There is a rule in surfing that's never drive away from good surf. So we put on our suits to catch a few waves. I decided I wanted to shoot with the Nikonos 3 and I wanted color. So I grabbed this Fuji roll. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the green label and that it was 1600. So there's one one little hint right there. That's so exciting, right? I mean, 1600 Fuji, it's, it's long gone. It was a wonderful emulsion and it would have looked really, really good on this day. Yes, I think yeah. so. <laughs> I was so, excited for you. I guess we could stop there and just I'll just explain that when I was home, I knew what this was. <laughs> but at the time, I saw the green Fuji label and the speed and I was like, sick, dude, I'm gonna shoot some color, stuck it inside my suit and took off. Yeah. Walked down the trail, took several shots down the trail. We paddled, I paddled out with Morgan the whole time, shooting her, thinking it was color. <laughs> and there is a difference for me, which I never really paid too much attention until now. But yes, I shoot differently from color to black and white. Okay, you're shooting color. Well, you thought you were shooting color at 1600. Yes. But you were actually shooting black and white at 1600. So, okay, not a huge failure there. That's not no. a big deal. No. No, I mean, I was shooting at the right, like, I mean, at the right settings. The camera is a little on the slow side, but it was fine. It was going to be fine. So you would have been fine. Yes. So where's the failure? Where's the failure? (laughs) So I finished the roll, Mm -hmm. put it away, drove away happy, super stoked, couldn't wait to get home. So when I got home, I was like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna mix a fresh batch of C41 with the intention of developing this specific roll because I was so excited about it. Yeah, that sounds, (laughs) wait. (laughs) 
That sounds heated like a everything good idea. up, went through the steps. Once oh. I washed and pulled the roll no, no. out, I instantly was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> See, yeah, In my I head, guess. super slow, obviously. I pulled the negatives out. They were gray. And finally reached the moment of clarity that the film was always black and white. <laughs> and I should wear my fucking glasses and read the label <laughs> because if I had just looked at the label in tiny writing, it says black and white film. So well, yeah, it was, um, it also said Neopan and pretty, it does. <laughs> I know, I know it says Neopan on it, but it's so, I, I just saw green. I was like, Oh, Fuji. Perfect. Done. Yeah. Back in the heyday of Fuji, like what, five years ago or six years ago, everything was green. <laughs> It was such a, I, I, it's such a dumb mistake. If I would have just read it, that it said Neopan on it, I would have been like, oh, black and white. But I was like so excited to go surfing. I was like, oh my God, I got to like, hurt. I mean, you saw. Oh my you God, saw you saw how very like excited. everything yeah. was like, okay, got to get my suit on, got to get my board, wax my board, la la la. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a really, you know, it's an intense little moment there. And I was really excited for this. So, okay, can you develop regular black and white film in C41. Of course. Does of it, course. What happens? <laughs> okay, so I guess on a good note, I did get some faint images on the roll. I mean, I burned the shit out of them, obviously. But still, there was some, like, faint, ghostly images. <laughs> I was able to scan some, and they were very, very uh, grainy. They, they It reminded me of the recording film that I liked so much that was, like, yeah, really speckled and messed up. So, yes, I did get some images. They are not what I thought I was shooting, but there there was something there. So, I guess, I mean, technically, it's, I mean, same with you. You, you The images that you got with the light leak, there's still an image there. You just have a ghastly, you know, light yeah, leak it, over horrible. it, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yours are, I like yours. I like, I've seen them. I'm looking at them right now. And I really, really, they're kind of fun images. Yeah. Just... I guess that day now, it just like one of those dreams, you just like picture like these perfect little days. And that was that day. And I was hoping that I like captured some of that on film. And I I didn't, I I captured something completely different. Well, it makes the day look like it often looks up there. Yeah, it does. You know, it looks like you were shooting on any given day, but you weren't. Yeah. So maybe sunny days don't really exist there. Maybe not. <laughs> At least not on film. <laughs> so that's my story. Yeah. This is all part of why we shoot film. We, sh- we shoot for the shots that come out, the ones that we love. Mm-hmm. And the shots that we lose are the price that we pay for the shots that we love. <laughs> film photography isn't just about paying for film or paying for developer or the work that goes into it. It's about the fuck ups. That's our payment as well. Yeah. And sometimes, like in your case, and maybe in my case, we pay a little more dearly than we want to. (laughs) But also sometimes the photos that you take are amazing. And sometimes the photos that I take are amazing. And those photos, those amazing photos, are paid for by our fuck-ups. Yeah. And our money. If you go to Manhattan Beach as much as I do, you'll end up meeting Pete Halverson. Pete is a regular at the pier. While he shoots mainly digital for his commercial and professional work, he's never left film behind. Today, we're going to talk to him about why. So, 
Let's give Pete a call. Hey! Hello! <laughs> How's it going? Good. All right, so Pete, we're really happy you could join us. Thank you so much. How are things going these days? Things are weird, man. Things are cool. <laughs> no, they're, 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 I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think we're all in a, in a pretty weird but unique time. I uh, keep saying to my son, I was like, you are going to remember this your entire life. Like this last eight months, nine months, this is going to be something that's going to be in history books and it's going to be where were you then? What did you do during that time? Um, from a photography standpoint, there's obviously um, you know a lot of implications with work. It's also an interesting time to just what are you documenting, you know, because it just it, it changes your whole perspective on what's uh, what stories you're telling. So um, you're mostly a digital photographer at this point, but you still shoot film. So what what draws you back to analog? The digital work obviously you know puts puts food on the table, roof over the head, and kind of just uh, keeps keeps it fed that way and. And uh, for me, it definitely, about 2012, 2013, I started to uh, go back and start to shoot personal stuff on film again. And if I look back at it now, I'd say maybe it was a little bit of the digital burnout of Mm -hmm. just kind of SD cards and hard drives everywhere and just needing to, to maybe not you know, have another SD card or another iPhone full of, of images. That, uh, but to have, you know, those 36 exposures that maybe it took me a month to shoot, but I knew that every single one of those images was a, was a moment that was uh, special enough to capture. It yeah. wasn't just, you know, you know, burst, you know, <laughs> right. burst mode, I think is, is just a double-edged sword in that. Yes, you can capture a whole lot of frames really quick. But guess what? You're capturing a whole lot of frames really quick. And <laughs> mine will be like a movie in, in my mind. You know, I start to hear this new Sony that has like, you know, 19 frames a second or whatever. And I'm going like, ah, you're basically just shooting video at that point. You know, it doesn't really feel like we're talking. But anyways, uh, the film side is definitely, uh, it was just wanting to, I'm hesitant to want to say like slow it down because I know that's something that, you know, we've, we've all said quite a bit or like it slows me down. You know, it's a, Film slows me down, but at the time it really did. And I think it did kind of, um, I think I was shooting a 5D Mark III at the time and I was really shooting a lot of, um, you know, I was getting into that burst mode of going like, cool, I can just pick out which photo is best. And so then all of a sudden I was measuring, you know, not only light or what film I had in there, but also, uh, you know, my focal length was fixed. So I was no longer, you know, 24 to 24 to 105 or something. I was, I was at a 50. So all of a sudden it was, I needed to be in in the right, in the right spot to shoot that image. So slowed me down. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll go back to slow me down. (laughs) So Eric and I are big fans of the Mamiya RB67. And I know that you personally own the RZ67, you shot me down um, in the sand uh, like last year. Uh, can you tell us your relationship with that camera? I, it's a tank, <laughs> as you know. It's a it, it's a it's a big camera, and and talk about being intentional. That is one that um, I obviously don't carry with it everywhere. If I'm going to take it down to the beach, you know, I'll have you know, 20 frames to shoot with, with both backs. And, and if that's the case, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going out and shooting. 
And so it, it creates even more intentionality and then as well as even the lenses. So, you know, my favorite lens is the 110, which at 2.8 is just incredibly crisp and clear, but it's also very unforgiving in that like you, you can miss it by an eyelash, (laughs) (laughs) but it feels great when you nail it. You know, it's like, I have some really cool shots of people just out of focus. And I know that that as I became, it's become a fad. I think some people are shooting like the out of focus uh, subject and the background in focus. It's kind of become cool. I've done that a lot on accident. So, Same. So, so it was like when I saw that started, I was like, oh, cool. I, I actually have some images I can share about that. And people will think they look great. And it's actually completely out of focus, but, um, but it looks cool. So do you have a favorite uh, film camera that you like to use? As you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Leica guy. So I, I do have, and, and I appreciate the opportunity that Leica gives me shooting film to be able to be mobile with it mm-hmm. um to where i guess i love the mamiya but you know i'm not can't take it on an assignment you know <laughs> to another country very easily it, it can go there but but it def- definitely takes away from you even being inconspicuous and kind of moving around a city or um you know that to me is is always a kind of a, a i'll either tripod or just like set it up somewhere and like like i said kind of plan the shot where the Leicas for me, I, I love the MP because it's fully mechanical. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of harkens back to the, um, you know, original uh, film cameras and, and like, there's nothing else between you and the image. It's just you, this mechanical piece of machinery and film yeah. and, and some glass and some beautiful glass. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> sure does. Um, so, so yeah, I, I mean the, the MP and then the M7 that I've owned for quite a few years, the M7, while it is, you know, on battery and the, with the TTL, it's definitely for me, it's, it, you have a relationship with these cameras and you've gone places with them and you know, every little scratch and nick in them that, that makes a big difference. You know, they, I grow with them where the digital ones, obviously you come and go with whatever the latest sensor is, um, comes in and out. But with those, they'll they'll be a legacy, and they're ones that I want to you know pass down to my kids, which is which is a nice way to think about those cameras. Yeah, yeah, I think so. We earlier in the in the episode we were talking about I guess what digital didn't do for us, and we didn't really consider that you do have to upgrade constantly with digital and with film. You you can you can update film upgrade upgrade film cameras all you want, but you generally stay in one thing. I guess there's just an opportunity to learn your camera a lot more than you would if it were if you're just shooting digital and constantly upgrading. Uh, so let's talk about your local shooting. So Eric always has a little bit of trouble. Actually, he doesn't really even shoot that much locally. How do you stay yeah. motivated and creative to shoot like in Manhattan? Uh, that's something that came over time because I, I a lot of my work over the last ten years has been travel photography. Mm-hmm. So um, while I'm traveling around the world, I'd come home and I was like, the last thing I want to do is like grab my camera again and go out around town. You know, while I'm out there with my family or just kind of enjoying being home Mm -hmm. and and document. And it wasn't until I started to uh, look at our place that we live through that same lens that I look at when I go to other places. So, you know, here I am telling stories around the world about uh, cities or about neighborhoods or countries mm-hmm. and then i'd come home and be like no i'm good I, mean, I, I take a photo of a sunset obviously or whatever you know like at the pier and then i start saying well what if i was on assignment here 
you know, what, what would I, what story would I tell? Who would I take a, who would I think is interesting looking? Who would I take a photo of or what, what a city block is kind of an interesting facade. Um, what interesting cars are on the street. And all of a sudden, you know, I started going like, wow, this is um, now I see why we have so many visitors these days. It's like, we, we live in a beautiful place, Mm -hmm. but it's also behind it. I think there's such an interesting mix right now of old school, local South Bay original and this, uh, you know, gentrification kind of new tech money and everything moving in. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've shot some film of that as well because, um, and, and even within the, the surf culture that I know you document so well. And I, I started to little by little, and this is probably going on a little over 10 years now that I've just wanted to document certain things, uh, surf culture wise on film mm-hmm. and just have it there. And so, um, and early on, I was just, I was shooting on expired film in a lot of it because I wanted this old gritty look, but then I was just like, it's old and gritty anyway. It was like on film, I kind of <laughs> gave it that anyway. It didn't need to be like super faded and, and, and grained out, you know, it was like, uh, uh, it, it just, I started to want to document it as it is. And so I, now I'm just, as I see something new that I'm like, Oh, I want to, I want to shoot that. But I want it to have this feel of what you don't know what era it was shot in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, yes. you could look at a surfboard and say like, "Oh, that's what it is," or a wetsuit mm-hmm. and say like, "Okay, that's what it is." But my idea is to be like, it, it's, it has a timeless feel to each of those images. Like, you don't know when that kid, you know, what era he is because he's got this long, shaggy hair and Birdwell, you know, shorts on. You know, mm-hmm. it's like yeah. could be in the seventies, <laughs> could be you know last week. Okay. Uh, because coronavirus, many of us, or so how are, are you able to work as a photographer, like commercially? Has that been affected during quarantine? Uh, it's absolutely been affected. Uh, as far as my own kind of workflow is concerned, I, I was lucky I had a couple jobs, like one of them literally finished the day before they did the, the lockdown. Oh, wow. And uh, so it was just in post after that. So that was mm-hmm. just went to my retoucher because i still need retouching at, at every level you absolutely do um and so so i had about a um a week or two worth of work as far as the retouching getting that ready to go to print um for that project i had another commercial shoot um that was my kind of my first under quarantine commercial shoot and mm-hmm. so that's a, just a whole new whole new set of hoops to jump through mm-hmm. uh but in general, I feel like uh, budgets are going to be a lot smaller. I feel like um, uh, you're going to be expected to be to to shoot with a lot more of a skeleton crew because you don't want to have a lot of people on set, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also through this type of new world that we're living in, kind of that's where I think innovation will come and people will all of a sudden figure out new ways to shoot things. And I, I we're already starting to sh- see that to where if they can cut out a few of the middlemen maybe between advertising and the product they need and somebody as a photographer can figure out a way to uh, capture the images that they need or the content whatever the video or, or photos that they need there's an area there that someone can jump into and uh, until we're able to get back up in the to full operational status within within the commercial industry I, 
you know, I, I'm definitely going to continue to kind of keep my ears open as far as how how I can best take care of what's needed advertising wise without necessarily booking a full crew like yeah. you normally would, uh, mm-hmm. just because of you know where we're at right now. So it's strange, it's weird, but it's also given me an opportunity to take a step back and look at the you know 12 years of of travel images that I have and start to put those together not only to sell fine art wise but also to put together some books which is something I've wanted to do for a while so yeah so all that's kind of like all right maybe given me that opportunity we talked about slowing down earlier (laughs) maybe the quarantine was that slow down for me okay well sort of leads into the next question uh, is what what effect has this shutdown obviously it's affected your professional work considerably but how has it changed your personal photo photography how your personal routines and all of that when it comes to shooting those the first two or three months of, of quarantine were really uh, it, it was it was special it was crazy it was new mm-hmm. um i remember going downtown a few times and going like i have to document this, this is the middle of the day on a wednesday and there was not one person out in in manhattan beach and i was like that I don't know how long this is going to last. It's never going to happen, you know, you know, other than maybe that, you know, a couple storms that we've had come through that kind of kept people out. But even then you'd have cars and stuff, but I got some images. There was nobody, there was nothing. And it was really like, I am legend stuff. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, this is crazy. So I started documenting that. Um, and then even just home life with um, our kids on their Zooms. I thought that was an interesting kind of new I, but I also was thinking like, oh, this is going to be a couple months and then yeah. we're going to get through and flatten the curve and we're going to get through this and then they'll be back to school soon enough. But now all of a sudden I look back and it was like, those images that I thought were so special and unique. And now all of a sudden I'm like, I could go shoot that right now. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> because I thought it was just this small moment in time. Or even when people started wearing uh, masks for the first time around town, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. This is so crazy. Like, look, there's people like, you know, I feel like I'm back in Asia people are wearing masks everywhere i'm in target people have masks on so i was you know i was kind of taking photos here and there of that again what i what i felt was like some kind of new new way that was just documenting um this moment in time but here we are (laughs) nine months later i'm like all right i'm over it (laughs) i want to take photos of people without masks how about that that'd be new and fresh and and crazy Instagram is kind of a huge part of our lives as photographers, uh, kind of has to be. It's played a pretty big role in your work, and you're really good at it. Um, so how does Instagram for you, how does it differ from places like Facebook or, or Twitter? No, uh, thank you. First off, it's definitely been, it's a, uh, I would say it's a labor of love. I definitely didn't see it at turning into a job like, like it, it, it has in, in some respects because it became part of my brand. It became part of my photography. Yeah. Uh, it's opened up a lot of doors for me, but it also it comes with a lot of work to make it look easy. I always say <laughs> it's like, you know, some people just see the post and like, there's, there's like, there's a certain style and a certain voice that comes with Instagram and, and um, a, a certain style that works. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's like it necessarily gets most likes as it does engagement. And the engagement is what I look for. Engagement is in comments. Engagement is people that I that I respect getting getting feedback from them. People that I that I love that I, I have a great community with there. So for the uh, for every episode, we ask our listeners to 
to leave a voice message, call in, and we um, we listen to their responses to this question that we ask every episode. And so the question for this episode is when you get a new camera, the endorphin rush is really amazing. And opening the box, holding the camera in your hands and doing initial test roll or however. But what has to happen to make that that happiness stick around? For me, it's always, it's the connection to the camera that has to be there. That connection doesn't necessarily have to be the the images. Um, it doesn't mean that the images are great necessarily coming out of the camera. It, it, it's a it's a memory of shooting the camera, you know, and that's where some of the images that I've shot with some of my cameras haven't been great images, but I remember shooting them with that camera so well that all of a sudden there's that connection yeah. to the camera. So I would say that's the kind of thing that I think it's it's again a personal relationship with with the device. And while it sounds strange, I think film photographers especially understand that what that means. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that about does it. Yeah, I think so. Thanks so much for having me on. Really, really cool. And I I look forward to chatting more. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bob has been shooting in the water since she was a kid. Day trips to the river and afternoons at the beach with a disposable camera. But in the last five years or so, she's been shooting with vintage underwater cameras. The one that she uses the most, an Iconos 3, or Nikonos 3, depending on how you want to say it, is 45 years old. Her oldest, the Mako Shark, is this this weird rubber ball of a camera, is 64 years old. So, why? <laughs> why do you do this, Vanya? Uh, the reason I shoot vintage underwater cameras is the same reason why I shoot regular vintage cameras. I like old shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, your your oldest is well over six decades old, 1956, I think it came out. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine that underwater photography existed before then in the 50s, but of course, it must have. And as we found out, it did. Yes. In fact, we looked back and discovered that it started at the very beginning of photography itself. People's livelihood was the sea. Their lives were the sea. It just makes sense that they would not only photograph the ocean, but photograph what lies beneath. The first underwater photo was taken in February of 1856 by an English solicitor and naturalist named William Thompson. He was an amateur photographer who shot wet plate collodion. Most of his photography revolved around marine life and the seaside. You might think that his desire to shoot underwater came from the draw to capture the submarine life, but that's not exactly how it happened. It was a dark and stormy (laughs) night, as the kids say. William Thompson and his friend, Mr. Kenyon, were watching a severe storm batter a bridge near Weymouth. Thompson, ever practical and financially concerned, thought not of the beauty of the storm, but how the water and the waves were battering the pylons of the bridge. The two got to talking. A diver would have to be sent down to survey the damage, but this was an expensive undertaking. Diving in those days required much preparation and money, of course. Thinking now of how he employed a camera to document the flora and fauna, he wondered why a camera couldn't just be lowered to snap a photo. But how? Cameras then, just like now, they they weren't waterproof, and getting them wet, let alone submerging them, 
was apparently an incredibly bad idea. So they made a wooden box with a glass plate on the front of it. Once sealed up, it was, they hoped, waterproof. Their plan was to row out to the shore and lower the camera fixed to a heavy tripod with a rope until it hit the bottom. But first, they had to load the plate into the holder, the holder into the camera, and the camera into the box. According to Thompson, The plate is prepared with collodion in the usual way under a tent. It is then placed in the camera. I then take the camera to the box and stand and throw a black cloth over all. I examine the shutter in front of the camera box to see that it is tight. Then, uncapping the shutter under the close, I place it in the box and finally draw up the slide. I then push the camera completely into the box until the front of the lens presses against the plate glass in front of the box and screw the back on tight. The camera is thus light tight and properly focused and nothing remains to be done but to lower it to the bottom of the sea. The two of them got into a rowboat, rowed out into the water, and lowered the camera. When it hit the bottom, about 18 feet below, he tugged on a string attached to the shutter, lifting it. Because there was very little light 18 feet down, the first exposure was five minutes. They pulled the camera back up, rowed back over to the shore, unloaded the camera from the box, the plate holder from the camera, and the plate from the holder. After quickly developing it in Pyro Developer, they found that they had captured absolutely nothing. Undaunted, they made another attempt, retracing all of their steps and exposing it for twice the time, 10 minutes, which is just an extra stop. After rowing back and developing this shot, they found success, I suppose. Having seen the photo, it's clear that they captured something, but... (laughs) (laughs) I guess... But what that something actually is, is sort of impossible to say. Thompson claimed it was the outlines of boulders and seaweed, and maybe it even was. In a letter to the Journal for the Society of the Arts, Thompson explained the condition of the camera after removing it from the water. With all my care, the pressure at the depth to which I sunk my camera forced the water into the camera itself and covered the collodion plate. When I opened the camera and found it full of water, I despaired of having obtained a view. But it would appear that salt water is not so injurious as I had feared. I took the precaution of washing the plate gently with fresh water, and then of dipping it for an instant in the silver bath. Shortly thereafter, Thompson designed a better water housing, but lost interest before testing it. He returned to his regular photography, never again submerging his camera. We'll have a link to Thompson's article that he wrote in the show notes. What Thompson's improvements were, we just don't know. But in 1880, Mr. W. Morris of Gurak or Garak, I do not know, Gal-rock, but I'm maybe? sorry, you guys. Yeah, these Garakians are going to be really pissed off at you. I know. <laughs> well, he was from England. He reinvented Thompson's camera. The camera is said to be powered beneath the wave and the cap removed when the adjustment has been made to suit the operator. According to a Scottish journal. Some fairly good views have been taken by this process. Unfortunately, this is all we know about it. Yep. We know nothing else. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> So that was the first underwater photo, but the first photo taken by someone underwater, meaning both the camera and photographer were submerged at the same time while taking the photo, was probably taken by a French zoologist named Louis Bataan in 1900-ish. And there is a lot of confusion and maybe not controversy, but there's a lot of confusion here. We'll try to work our way through it. (laughs) When Bataan first attempted underwater photography, he started by remaining on a boat and submerging the camera. 
much like Thompson operating the shutter with a long rope. The difference was that Bhutan used a detective camera. This wasn't a small device. It still shot large format plates, but it had a fixed focus. Yes, detective cameras at the time weren't small. I'm not sure why they were called no, detective cameras. No, doesn't. I mean... <laughs> he was using 9 by 12 centimeter plates. Pretty, pretty big for a detective camera. <laughs> So this camera, like Thompson's, was housed in a watertight metal box and placed upon a metal tripod, though that design would eventually change. It seems that Bhutan's early attempts met with some nominal success. The foregrounds were captured, but anything in the background simply faded to black, and he just didn't know why. Like Thompson, he discovered that long exposures were necessary, 10 to even 30 minutes as the water was so dark. He even tried several different design ideas, including just sinking a camera, letting the whole thing fill up with seawater, and then taking the shot. That, as we hinted in the trivia question, didn't work, and he returned to the water housing idea. Bhutan still remained on his boat to take photos, but he claims that it was because that the mud where he was testing would be kicked up by the diver and ruin the photo. Upon moving to clearer waters, Bhutan would send the diver down with the camera to compose the shot and focus the device. Probably. What we're doing is we're using Google Translate from a book that he wrote that was in French, and we're not 100% sure everything's getting right here, but... <laughs> We're doing our best. After a few more tries, he met with success. This is the photo that is often called the first underwater portrait. And it is. So this first underwater portrait was taken September 14th, 1898 at a depth of three meters. And this is the kind of the famous one that that we'll have it in the show. I think actually we're probably going to use it for the cover of the (laughs) episode. It's a really neat photo. It's a great photo. And this is kind of where all of this controversy, big air quotes there. It's not controversial. Uh, where all this comes from. And so according to Bhutan's notes, Bhutan's mechanic, David, David the mechanic, fired the shutter from the edge of the boat. Now, it's often called the first underwater photo taken while a photographer was fully submerged. This is not true. So yes, that famous photo, probably not the first photo taken by a photographer underwater. But... We'll move on. In an 1898 article, Bhutan complained that artificial light was still not sufficient to capture a good underwater photo, but he knew he was close. Apparently, between that article, which is 1898, and his book, which was published two years later, he figured it out. Again, hard to say. So this famous photo in question, that of the diver holding the sign reading Photography Sous Marine, and I'm absolutely 100% certain I'm getting the French right there. It's a bit of a mystery. So in his book, Bhutan claims a photo was taken in September, and he gives two different dates, which is handy, of 1898 by his mechanic who pulled the string, like we said. It's likely that Bhutan was himself underwater to set up the camera. So then that might be where the idea comes where he was the first underwater photographer. But who was in the diving suit is less certain. But most claim it was Romanian oceanographer and biologist Emil Rakovica. But Bhutan never lets on. It's even possible that it was his mechanic who was in the suit, though who pulled the string would be a mystery. Yes. So the most logical answer to all of this is that Bhutan took and retook this photo several times. He states as much in his book, give those two different dates. Early on, he used a string to fire the shutter, and at other times, he used an electrical switch of some kind. This specific photo might be the only one that exists from these various sessions. Other photos, including one of the diver without a suit, was taken on September 21st by David, the mechanic. What is likely is that the photographer was not in the water with the diver for at least this photo. Though the history is foggy, it's likely that Bhutan did eventually shoot the portrait while he was himself submerged in the water. We just don't have the date. 
No. But in an 1898 article, Bhutan complained that artificial light was still not sufficient enough to capture a good underwater photo, but he knew he was close. Apparently, between that article and when he published his book two years later, he figured it out. For this, Bhutan developed an extraordinary underwater flash rig that included an alcohol lamp that was fastened to a barrel filled with oxygen. I just have to say, it's basically a bomb. <laughs> this is this is a bomb. He made a bomb. <laughs> A bulb made of rubber was used to blow a puff of magnesium powder over a flame inside a glass lamp, creating a flash. Terrifying, but quite extraordinary. Regardless of all of this and his weird discrepancies and confusion, Bhutan is considered the grandfather of underwater photography, and rightly so. He wasn't the first, but he was the first to popularize it. His photos were likely the first published underwater photos, appearing in the May 1898 issue of The Century Magazine. We'll have the links to all of them, of course. So roughly a decade and a half later, in 1914, in America, things were moving right along. The motion picture had caught everyone's attention. If still photos could be captured under the waves, so might moving pictures. In this, there was actually much success. It seems strange that the jumps from a half-hour-long exposure to motion picture happen in such a short time, but much of this was due to the Williamson brothers, Jay Ernest and George. This all started when their father, Captain Charles Williamson of Norfolk, Virginia, began to work on a sort of submarine apparatus that would allow a person to descend to nearly any depth to photograph underwater. Essentially, his invention was a flexible tube that ran from a boat to a submersible terminal operating chamber in which work or observation can be carried on at the bottom of the water. Both Jay Ernest and George had been down in the submarine observing fish at Hampton Roads, Virginia. They speculated that with clearer water, they could actually film a motion picture down there. The frame rates of motion pictures were about 16 frames per second, essentially one sixteenth of a second for each frame. With usual underwater times measured in minutes rather than seconds, this seemed impossible. But with clear waters in the Bahamas, where sunlight could reach down 150 feet, they thought it might work. These marine gardens, as they were called, were filled with reefs and old wrecks of pirate ships and Spanish galleons. It was the perfect backdrop for their movies. They hired cameraman Carl L. Gregory to film, and he shot the first moving pictures underwater. This submarine chamber was designed by Jay Ernest. It was round with a large glass window in a shape of a funnel. The window was five feet in diameter and an inch and a half thick. He dubbed this his photosphere. They shot at a depth of 15 to 25 feet with a strong current. The brothers lowered Gregory and his camera in the apparatus down to the shallow depths where he cranked his movie camera. He captured a spectacular panorama of the gardens. But it wasn't just motion pictures being shot aboard this weird little submarine. Kevil Glennon, a still photographer, was able to capture clear shots with an f-stop of 6.3 and a shutter speed of 175th of a second. Other shots were taken at one. 300th of a second. Not only that, and this is a little odd, but color plates were apparently, this is a quote, taken to be used as a guide in coloring the motion picture film by hand so that the world may see in their natural tints the fish, the wrecks, the reefs, and the marine gardens. The problem here is that the first underwater color photos supposedly weren't taken until 10 years later. Maybe we're misunderstanding the phrase color plates were taken. It's also possible that it was a bichrome or trichrome process that used colored filters to render the appearance of color images when the color slides were eventually laid on top of each other. We did this before, like, I don't know, six, seven episodes ago we did trichromes. 
Oh, I think it was a lot longer than that. But yes, we've, we've done trichromes before. You, you'll definitely know what these are. Well, if you don't know about them, definitely look them up. So the article appearing in the Baltimore Sun does not go into detail. Which is a real bummer, because it'd be kind of fun to know if these were the first color photos taken underwater. Yes. But officially, they are not, for some reason. <laughs> the film that they produced was a documentary called 30 Leagues Under the Sea. Two years later, they produced an adaptation of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. While the first film is lost to history, the second survives. The following year, they made another. For the next three decades, the Williamson brothers used their photosphere to produce a slew of movies for Hollywood. And as they made advances in motion pictures, still photography made advances as well. So it seems impossible to find out more about the color plates that were taken during the Williamson expedition in 1914. But history seems to recall that the first color photograph taken underwater happened in 1923 or 1926 by the National Geographic photographer named Charles Martin and also Dr. William Longley. Like many still images captured before this, Martin and Longley used a water housing and a magnesium flash to illuminate the deck. Unlike others in the past, however, the magnesium flash was floated on the surface of the water. When it went off, the light could be somewhat directed downward into the briny depths. Prime time. What they produced was at least one photo of kind of a adorable-ish hogfish off of the Florida coast. <laughs> Look them up. <laughs> so it had been nearly a hundred years since the first underwater photo was taken, and still the ability to shoot in the waves was reserved for for Hollywood, really, and very professional photographers. You literally had to construct your own water housing. But in 1947, that began to change. It was then the French diving equipment company Bouchot developed the first commercially available water housing. This was an airtight metal case for a camera that still allowed the camera to function and shoot photos, but kept the water out. The original model, called the Focascaf and the Aquafote Foca, was made for the French camera named Foca. That's the name. A few years later, the housing was made to fit Leicas. They came in both short and long lens models. This suddenly made underwater photography relatively affordable and easy. Even professional researchers used them. There was also another product called the Voigt Plastic Bag, and maybe my favorite photography product ever, <laughs> because it was just that. It was a plastic bag. This transparent plastic bag was flexible enough to allow the photographer to work the controls of literally any camera that you could stuff into it. But really, it was just a plastic bag. I love this. Well, we do have things that are similar these days. Yeah, we have Ziploc bags. So while most divers and underwater photographers use water housings made for regular cameras, it was only a matter of time before someone developed a fully dedicated waterproof camera for the mass market. And that time was 1956, and that person was Jordan Klein of Florida. Yes, it was a Florida man. <laughs> Ed Pierce's photography column in Florida Living described the camera. The name is Mako Shark, and it's made entirely of plastic. It uses 620 film and has a fixed focus lens with a shutter speed of 1 50th of a second. The best feature of all is the price. The camera sells for $19.95, about $200 in today's money. The camera is very light. Loading it is simple, the film advance spool is plenty large for easy operation, and the shutter release is conveniently located on top of the camera. 
Klein, the inventor of the Mako shark, suggested using Triax, which is basically the highest speed available at the time. It was a fixed focus lens, but objects from five feet away to infinity were as crisp as the little plastic lens could make them. Another reviewer wrote, The contraption is awkward to handle, but it has proved it possible to take interesting underwater photos, even with a box camera. Did you hear that, Graham? He said box camera. Thank you very much. And that's what it was. It was often compared to the Kodak Brownie Hawkeye. The coolest thing about this camera, literally the coolest thing (laughs) about this camera, is that Vanya actually has one and has actually shot with it. So tell us about this this Mako shark. It's ridiculous. (laughs) There is one that is a couple years later that they put a weight in it to get it to balance a little bit better when shooting, if you're shooting underwater. But the one that I have is silly, ridiculous. It takes 620, so I have to re-roll. It's fun to have because it's part of history. The past few times that I've taken pictures with it, they're pretty terrible. <laughs> but well, it I mean, is no, fun, and it has a Mako shark on it. So well, The pictures look very much like the Imperial Savoy pictures, and I have a feeling that maybe his prototype was just a cut-down Imperial Savoy. I mean, the, the insides look exactly like that. Yeah. It does. Well, the problem that I have with it is the the window in the back that shows you, uh, you know, to for the film advance is green. And yeah. I shot with it on a very sunny day, and I got a green like globe throughout all my pictures because light was coming in. This was on color film. Yes, it was. It was on color film. So I ended up. Um, putting a piece of red film over it to like make it darker. But guess what? Green (laughs) and red make black and I can't see shit now. (laughs) So I just have to probably put a piece of like some sort of waterproof tape over the window and then just peek as I advance is what I'm going to have to do. I definitely will take it out soon again. I feel like since we've been talking about it, it makes me excited. There's film loaded in it. It's just seriously. Yeah, it's is it is it black and white film? I don't know. Let me look. Let me just say that it doesn't really matter what's in there because there's no settings. <laughs> so That's I true. guess I'll find out when I'm done. Okay. <laughs> yes, you have film in here written on a piece of tape over the lens. Perfect. I'll definitely take a picture of it so we can share it because it is yes, a it's really a- neat. It's a it's a silly camera. It's really fun. I'm I'm glad I own one. Honestly. Yeah, it was. it's a great little piece of history. And now this finally brings us to 1960 and the Calypso, more commonly known as the Nikonos, but originally called the Calypso, named after Jacques Cousteau's boat, the Calypso. <laughs> and why was it called that? Because it was conceived by Jacques Cousteau himself. Now, conceived is not the same thing as designed. And I'm not sure how you conceive of a camera being underwater. I'm not sure why he's credited with that, but whatever. It was invented and designed by Jean de Walters, a Belgian inventor whose full name was somehow Jean-Guy-Marie Joseph Cavalier de Walters de Oplinter. The Calypso wasn't just a box in a watertight body. It was fully designed for the underwater experience. For example, one lever operated the film advance, the shuttercock, and the shutter release. This made underwater use incredibly simple, though with a bit of a learning curve. The controls for both the focus and the aperture settings were located on either side of the lens. Speaking of lenses, there were three. 
25 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and 45 millimeter, all with apertures around f3-ish. It had its shutter speeds from 1 30th of a second all the way up to 1 1,000th of a second. Through the next 15 years, Nikon made some updates and the gradual improvements as they blew through the Nikonos 1, 2, and then finally 3. In 1980, the Nikonos 4 introduced, through the lens metering, and a bit of a body redesign, bringing it more in line with modern 35mm cameras. It was a little buggy, though, so five years later, they came out with the Nikonos 5, which was basically the Nikonos 4 with all the bugs taken out. And so, again, this is where you enter, Vanya. You have a few. I do. do I have, have a two, a three, and a five. Oh, okay. Uh, the two is not pressure tested, so I actually haven't used it in the water yet. Uh, when I get some money saved up at some point in the next 10 years, I'll, I'll, I'll have someone do a pressure test on it. It's okay. probably my favorite one out of the three. Uh, the two is smaller, more compact, and I like how the two and three are loaded. It's It's just such a fun design. If yeah. you've never held one in your hands, I highly suggest it. It's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and what I was saying about like the shutter release, you're not really pushing a button, you're pushing a lever. And I think that had a lot to do with when you're scuba diving and you're wearing gloves and you got like all this equipment on. It just made sense that they would make that much easier to take a photograph. Hey, but you also have a five, right? You have one of the later models. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah, the 5 is great. It does have speed settings for ISO. And okay. if you're looking through the viewfinder, it'll help you as far as like what your speed should be. And I think that probably would be more helpful underneath the water. But I tend not to use that very much anyways. I'm kind of guessing for the most part. But more, I'm trying to master like lighting. <laughs> Underwater sure. is completely different. I actually have a huge Siconic light meter that connects to my Nikonos camera that glows in the dark. So when you get oh. down deep enough, it glows. It's really neat. So that kind of helps really me cool. with metering underwater because that is definitely sure. like a whole different thing. So then in 1992, Nikonos redesigned their camera once again. And this was the first underwater autofocus SLR. And having achieved that right before the digital changeover, it was discontinued before the decade was out. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> what we've got now is essentially disposable water cameras. And that's kind of it, yeah, right? Yeah. Fuji and Kodak still make underwater disposable cameras, and they usually have 800 speed film in them. Yeah, it makes it, they're kind of playing it safe then. And I don't think either of them ever stopped making them. No. Like they've always made underwater cameras. I think so. I, I feel like everybody's had this experience when you're growing up, whether it's the pool or a sprinkler outside, begging your mom in the, in line at the grocery store and they have those water cameras like right there. And you're like, oh, let me have one, please. I want to use one. Like it just seems like an experience I feel like most people have gone through. Yeah, and it's weird because like now it could very well be someone's first experience with film photography. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. That is kind of cool. There you go. It was a, a weird little history of underwater photography ending with splashing around in a sprinkler. <laughs> Seems kind of perfect for us. <laughs> Well, we get to bring back one of our favorite segments, zine reviews. We got one zine. Well, Eric got a zine. I'm so excited. Flip through it. I want to see. Tell us all about it. Yes. We've been going through a little bit of a dry spell when it comes to zine reviews because we just haven't been getting zines in. So people, make zines. This one comes to us from Canada. 
It's called Houses of the Holy, and it's by Marcus Staley. And it's it's just what it says it is. It's a zine full of churches. I'm kind of a church fan myself, and like Marcus, I'm drawn to their architecture, not necessarily their philosophy. This uh, zine is an 8 by 8 zine. It's perfect bound, which is really, really cool, and comprises, uh, and is comprised of both film, 35mm and 120, and there's some digital shots as well. For me, the black and white photos are my favorite, and I honestly, with the exception of a couple of them, I can't tell which is which, uh, as far as film or digital goes. Particularly, I like the ones with a bit more close-up detail, especially the Berrien Baptist Church photo. Love that one. Um, one of the striking things with this one is, is how much the churches look like the churches I grew up with in Pennsylvania. They're very similar. Now, these photos are taken on Ontario, so it's not like it's worlds away. They kind of even share a border, sort of Lake Erie, but whatever. But it, it really surprised me anyway. Maybe my understanding of Canada is, is a bit weird or skewed, and that's probably the case. I'm an American. Anyway, I think it's really worth picking up. Uh, some people might take issue with it being a mix of digital and film, and I mean, honestly, I don't really mind that. If anything would have to bother me about it, I think it's my curiosity going, wait, 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 which film stock is that, or is it even film? I I'm a sucker for having way more information than most people require. It's a curse. So... Pick this one up. You can get copies by contacting Marcus on Instagram at Marcus Daily Photography. We'll have links in the show notes and definitely pick it up. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. We've got bonus episodes, full length interviews, and a growing number of things, whatever that is. For instance, we re oh, you're going to tell us. I am, okay. actually, because I'm reading us. this. For instance, we recently put out a bonus episode with our little trip that we did. And we've got a full unedited version of Pete Halverson's interview that you just listened to. Yes, if you want to hear more from Pete, and you do, head on over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. And since we are recording so very close to the last time we recorded, we don't really have any additional uh, patrons, which is which is understandable since it's only been a couple of days. Want to continue, but we do want to continue with our featured patron, and this time around, it is Dave Walker, who goes by Dave the Walker eighty on Instagram. Yes, I've been following Dave for quite some time. Yeah. I love his photographs. He has like a mix. Some of them look like old photographs. I don't know if they're from like I think some of them are. Yeah. Yeah, they're like old family old family photos. And I think he was even doing some like coloring of them. I think so, or somebody was. I'm not I'm not really sure. He's uh he's sort of an elusive guy when it comes to to words even though he's probably about as wordy as I am. We're kind of similar in that respect. His black and white work, especially the stuff in Peru. Yeah, the is condor Oh my god, it's a mindfuck how good this stuff is. The one photo they did that he has uh, near the start of the four-day Inca Trail across the Andes in Peru, it's of like a canyon, a little canyon, with uh, mountains all around it and some clouds up in the air, and oh my god, it's amazing. It was shot on HP5, and I think he, he tinted it a little bit. It's a little tinted, isn't it? Mm-hmm, I think so. It works. It's not overly done. It's perfect. It's a really wonderful little shot, Dave the walker it's amazing yeah he's got a lot of it, it's a good balance between really awesome photography shots old photos that are from his family and then of course his adorable children and then super fun geary like electronic 
camera awesomeness. <laughs> yes, he does a lot of he does. He's, you know, a, a jack of all trades, maybe. Yes. Thank you, Dave, so much for supporting us. And thank you so much, Dave. Winding up the show, let's finally answer the trivia question. Remind us again what it was. <laughs> In 1896, French zoologist Louis Vuitton was trying to capture underwater images. After being unimpressed with his waterproof case that he built for his camera, he decided to just submerge his bellows camera, allowing it to completely fill up with water before he took the shot. The photos he created were exposed correctly, and even the lens proved to be sharp underwater. But the results were still full of waves and blur. What was the cause of this imperfection? So, the answer is right here inside this little envelope. But first, let me extricate it from its paper prison. And yes. Okay. Bhutan wrote that you have to operate the shutter to take the photo. However, the difficulty in moving the shutter without giving the liquid, the water, a harmful ripple was detrimental to the sharpness of the images, even with all the components immersed in water. So what that means is the shutter rippled the water. If you got this one right, congratulations. You are deserving of exactly one pat on the back, which you have to administer yourself. It's not much, but it's better than a slap on the belly with a wet trout. And that's about all of the podcasts we have for you today. But before we leave, we shall remind you again about the answering machine question. When you first get a new camera, the endorphin rush is amazing. Right? You open the box, you hold the camera in your hands, you even do like initial test roll. All that is amazing. But what has to happen between you and the camera, that relationship, what has to happen to make that happiness stick around? Think about it, won't you? If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail, and we're all through a lens on Twitter. Fanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag all through a lens podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for your support. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Oh, Vanya? Yeah? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! <laughs> so many... <laughs> so many... I'm turning into a pirate. <laughs> Gold, baby. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, do you think that this is, like, too long of an episode? I don't care. Okay.